Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of James Talks. Um, really great to have you all here, and we've got a really special guest today. Um, the um, <laughs> legendary Peter Rollins is here with me today. So uh, welcome, Peter. It's great to have you here. Hi, it's great to be on the show. Uh, I'm half an hour late, but we got here in the end. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, we'd arrived just we'd arrived to chat to five thirty my time, and Pete suddenly realised his diary was all wrong. So. Uh, yeah, but we not, have to get not it done. the first time that's happened. Not the first time that's <laughs> happened. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Okay, uh, yeah. So for those of you who don't know Pete, he's a um, philosopher, theologian, um, poet as well, and an author as well. He's written uh, several books: um, How Not to Speak of God, um, Insurrection, um, The Idolatry of God, and his most recent one, The Divine Magician. And they're all absolutely brilliant. Recommend them all, all to you. Um, yeah, so he's going to, we're going to talk about a lot of different things today, um, and it's going to be really interesting. So, um, yeah, so just so Pete, yeah, just tell us a bit about like your story and um, how you came to be doing what you're doing now. Yeah, so I'm from Belfast, Northern Ireland originally, currently living in America, and uh, my primary training, well, actually, I was going to say my primary training is in philosophy, uh, but I came out of school without any qualifications and got involved in a, a local church. I had this kind of moment of conversion when I was 17, got involved in kind of religious conversations and mm-hmm. also kind of worked with uh, some uh, the homeless organisations that were in Belfast. Mm-hmm. But then when I was in my early 20s, I took an interest in philosophy and theology and studied that at Queen's University. Um, but I also set up a community at the time in Belfast called Icon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That was a place where we could kind of, yeah, to be honest, the, the type of religious experience I, I was having was one that really sought certainty, sought satisfaction. It was about having the answers, about, mm. you know, convincing other people that we had the answers. And I just became increasingly suspicious about that approach and felt that there might be a different way of doing things. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's what brought me into philosophy, and that's what brought me into developing uh, Icon. Awesome. That's really cool. <clears throat> so, okay, so Icon was, um, that was, just tell us a bit about what Icon, what Icon was. Um, what was about. Yeah, Icon, we, we called it Transformance Art. Uh, the idea was we would create these kind of experiences that you would walk into, and uh, they'd be quite disturbing, decentering. They would be self-critical. They'd be deconstructive. They were designed to bring our doubts to the surface. They were designed to help uh, bring us to a place where we would critique ourselves, listen to uh, other voices, um, and you know, ultimately uh, try to explore a type of faith that wasn't primarily about what you believed, but about a different way of life, uh, a different kind of way of being in the world, mm. one that was able to cope with uh, depression as well as happiness, unknowing as well as kind of knowledge, uh, doubt as well as uh, feeling that sometimes, you know, you have, you have the answer that, that, it, that it would be able to uh, make room for all of those things. Right. So what was it, give, me, give us an example of like one of, one of those meetings, what it would look like. Okay, um, you know, so one example was a meeting we did uh, called Risk. And in that gathering, everything that happened from when you walked into the room had contingency built into it. So Mm -hmm. the sermon was uh, decided on the spot uh, in terms of what people were shouting from the audience. the music was decided on dice rules. The, the 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 liturgy was decided through the casting of lots. Everything was on. But then once we decided what randomly we were doing, we spoke about it with certainty and conviction. Uh, I even did a parable that was kind of improvised, etc. And we mm. told this parable, or this parable came out of the service, about a philosopher who decided everything he believed through the casting of three dice. Everything yeah. from the existence of God to, you know, the meaning of life. And then once he decided through the casting of these dice, mm. he would write books on it. He would go into debates and he would, like, you know, win arguments. Uh, and you know, part of what we were exploring in that gathering is the way that 
all of us, by the time we come to think critically, uh, already have lots of beliefs that have been given to us by our culture, by our family, by our mm. schools. Yeah. And then what we do is we often defend those to the death as if we decided them ourselves. Yeah. That, you know, say you're 14 or 15 and you finally decide to think about your beliefs, you already have them. And so the idea was, well, how instead of we, instead of just defending the beliefs that we have, what does it look like to actually affirm the constructive nature of our beliefs and try to engage more critically with them? Interesting. That's really interesting. Um, actually, that brings us to the next thing I was going to ask you about. Um, uh, you, one of the projects that you run is called Atheism for Lent. Yeah. Um, and I'm actually, I'm actually participating in that at the moment. I can tell you, it's all it's fascinating. Um, but just tell us a bit about what that is and and the whole idea behind it and where it came from. Yeah. So part of um, part of Icon was also developing what we call decentering practices. Uh, these are practices that would cause us to rethink ourselves and, and our beliefs and, and whatever. And, and the idea of calling it a decentering practice is because a lot of progress in the world comes from <clears throat> self-criticism and also decentering. The very fact that we uh, discovered that the earth revolves around the sun was a decentering experience. The idea that uh, with Darwin that you know we are ultimately animals was decentering, and uh, if you take the idea of the unconscious with Freud, mm. that was also decentering. The idea that we're not as in control of ourselves as as we think we are. So, we developed uh, a group called the Last Supper, uh, one called the Omega Course, and and what you're doing at the moment called Atheism for Lent, and Atheism for Lent is about reading the great critiques of religion and Christianity, mm. not to judge them, but to let them judge us, to see if they can decenter us, destabilize us, uh, and open us up to um, new ways of seeing the world and understanding each other. Uh, I mean, part of it as well is to show that the battle lines between atheism and theism are not as strong as we think. Mm. That, you know, in, in truth, all of us, are probably a mix of atheists and theists and agnostics. Even yeah. if you're a believer who every week preaches in church, there'll be days when you look up at the stars and wonder if, uh, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my beliefs are just because of where I was born and what my parents taught me. Yeah. Um, and vice versa, you know, if you're an atheist, you might still feel yourself wanting to say a prayer of thanksgiving when something goes well. And that's not to say you're a believer, but it's just to say that there's a little part of you that, that still intuitively does that. And in fact, if we don't make peace with those parts of ourselves, we often get angry with people who represent those parts of ourselves. So if someone gets really angry at someone who's an atheist, like really viciously angry, mm. it might be because they haven't come to terms with that small part of themselves. So Atheism for Lent explores how atheism and theism are much more interconnected. I mean, even in Christianity, they yeah. are. The early Christians were called atheists. Uh, there's a whole mystical <laughs> tradition where every time you name God, like a theism, say God is this or that. Yeah. You have to have an atheism, a, a, a disbelief in that naming. You have to say, yes, but I never get it. My words yeah. never reach what I'm trying to reach. So atheism for that explores all of those types of things. Wow. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been doing atheism for that, and what I've found doing it is that it's reflected my faith back to me. It's yeah. confronted my, like, it's... Um, it's. I kind of feel like I'm standing on the edge of a, like a, a glacier or something, like ready to fall off because it's kind of taking me to right to the very edge of my, what I say I believe, and actually saying to me like, you know, do do you actually believe this? What do you actually believe? How are you? It, how is what you say you believe reflected in how you're living? You know. Yeah. So you have to conf kind of confront, like you say, to confront the truth about what you actually believe as opposed to what you say you believe because yeah. obviously they're two different things aren't they yeah i mean the, the course itself was inspired by a book called suspicion and faith by a conservative christian philosopher called merrill westphal mm -hmm. because he was arguing that uh nietzsche marx freud and feuerbach as some of the great atheists mm -hmm. of, of our western tradition they actually are purifying forces that they they help us 
to do what the prophets have always done, which is expose religion that is just about creating inside and outside, religion that's just there to, to make us feel good, religion that is there just as a belief to help you sleep at night, uh, and actually to engage critically with the great atheists um, is a way of really um, entering into a deeper understanding of, of faith. Uh, but the problem is we often don't listen to our critics, whoever our critics are, because our defences are up. But if we can lower our defences and listen to critical voices, we often find that those critical voices have an awful lot to teach us. Yeah, I, I'm definitely finding that. Um, it's quite challenging for me because I, um, like you, I came out of um, a kind of a tradition of kind of traditional Christian faith. Even I grew up in the Methodist Church, and you know, and then. Um, yeah, it was all my faith was all about certainty and about you know you can't you know that and very much the traditional you know, you know all sing sing worship songs you know pray for people and they fall over all that kind of thing yeah. and um, what actually what actually shook my what actually shook that was the death of my mother um, and I mean I only realised this looking back actually but it kind of ruptured me a little bit and kind of said, I've got this, this idea of God that I'd had isn't, isn't enough anymore, you know? Yeah. Um, and I had to find ways to express that, you know? Um, the way, the way back I found was, was through, firstly it was through Velvet Elvis, um, that book, and then moving on to read some of your stuff and other people's, um, and going to a church where I was able to express that as well, which yeah, it's very difficult to find a church where you can do that. But um, so, because I know you often talked about how traumatic events are what what shift us and what transform us and what push us to go further than we have before, and that's certainly been my experience. Um, but even now, I kind of I think. Oh, sorry, you're going to say something. Oh no, go ahead. Um, no, I mean, I, the the next step. I mean, I've, I read after reading um, how not to speak of God. Um, a lot of people read that, I think, and wanted to kind of embrace doubt and wanted to embrace mystery. But the thing I, I think the thing I struggle with, actually, and I think probably a lot of people do, is I don't want to get to the point where, okay, I'm into mystery and uncertainty and, and doubt and all that kind of thing, and I want to explore that. And I want to confront my faith, but I don't want to get stuck in certainty in that place. Mm-hmm. I don't want to stay stuck in that place either. And yes, let, yes. let that become my comfort zone. I want to actually keep moving forward. So how do you, how do you, I mean, how do you manage that in your own life? And how would you say that we can, we can manage that process and keep, keep, keep away from certainty, even in uncertainty, if you see what I mean? Yeah. And, and you know, there's, there's a certain form of, um, uh, certainty that I, I, I do affirm. Um, it's a very, it's, a, it's similar to what Pascal meant when he said the heart has reason, the reason does not know. And we can, we can come to that maybe in a, in a minute. But, but, yeah, it's very easy to make anything a type of system that prevents us from really looking at what's going on in our lives, in our society, uh, in our communities. So even embracing doubt and unknowing, of course, can become its own ideology. Uh, you can embrace doubt and unknowing because you think it's the cool thing to do. Unless, mm. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. So what, what one needs to do is have a space in one's life and rituals in one's life that help us to, to look at you know, how we, how we use defense mechanisms. So, for example, if you break up with someone, you might engage in the defense mechanism of splitting, which means you think of yourself as innocent and good and the person you broke up with is bad and evil. And mm. that helps you, you know, whenever you're in deep pain, it helps you to function and keep going and go to work. Mm-hmm. But So the defense mechanism isn't bad, but if you don't eventually look at what's going on beneath it, it will cause problems. You will be able to go out with somebody else. You'll be bitter. You'll be resentful. So at a certain point, you have to go, and a friend might have to say, listen, I just think you're, you're in pain. And, and if that's said at the right time, the person might go, yes, and you know what? They're not all bad, and I'm not all innocent. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Mm. And then, you know, progress can be made. And yeah. <clears throat> so what we need to be doing is continually looking at what our defense mechanisms are because within liberal churches, doubt 
is fine. You can doubt everything. God's existence, Jesus, the Bible, it's all fine. But then if you say, I want to uh, move the altar candles five feet to the right, someone will say over my dead body. Mm. Right? The, the, the anxiety mm. is not in the belief. The anxiety is in the structure. Um, so you're always trying to work out what is, what is the, the obsessive ritual that we're using to protect ourselves from looking at the difficult parts of our lives and our societies. Sometimes those are beliefs, like in conservative churches, belief is often the defense mechanism. But in more liberal and progressive churches, it can be the institutional structure itself. Um, so we developed mm. a thing called the Evangelism Project in Belfast, where right. we go to be evangelized by other communities. You'd go to the Islamic society, the Jewish community, whatever it was. Now, the evangelism wasn't really them telling us what they believed, although that was part of it. We called it the Evangelism Project because there was a point where we said, what do we look like to you? And we allowed the other, the outsider, the, 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 part, the community that's, that, that's on the outside of our society, so today Islam, to go, mm. what do Christians look like from your perspective? And that destabilizes you. That's about like showing you the things that you'd rather not see, the truth that you'd rather not look at. But if you're able to listen to that critique and take it to heart, it would cause evangelism. It's a gospel. It's a good news that will help you become a healthier, more beautiful person. So any community needs to build in rituals like that that are designed to constantly let the outside critical voice speak into it and be its salvation. Wow, that's I mean, that sounds, and that, uh, I've heard of the Evangelism Project before because I've obviously listened to a lot of your work, but um, that sounds, the way you talk about it, it sounds a bit like, almost like a physical dimension to atheism for Lent because you're allowing your faith to be critiqued by other people. Yes. But on a phys- in a physical way rather than just yes. reading um, material. Exactly. Um, wow. So, I mean, how do, how's doing these things kind of shaped your, your spiritual journey? Oh, could you repeat the question? Sorry, I've got a, I've got a bit of a cold. I keep coughing. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> oh, well, so, oh, did you not hear the question? <laughs> oh, yeah, I didn't hear the question. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> how, is, how have these kind of practices shaped your own spiritual journey and your own kind of experience of, of faith? Yeah, I mean, I find them to be very positive uh, and transformative personally. So, you know, these practices, like, for example, the Last Supper, where 12 of us meet together in an upper room, we invite someone, who, a guest, who likely believes something very different from the community around the table to talk about what they believe and why they believe it. And if we don't like what they say, it's their last supper, hence it's called the last supper. Right. Uh, these practices, like, do you do that once and that's a fun night? Oh, you know, somebody from the you know transgender uh, political advocacy group comes and gives a, a talk and that's interesting, it's informative, it's inspiring, you have a drink together. But if you have a different guest every month for a year, so you're constantly opening yourself up to people that you might not meet in other circumstances, it begins to cause you to self-critique. It causes you to think about things differently. And I find that that process is always a, a positive one. It's, it, it's one that that is enlivening. It's one that, that gives space for you to ask your own questions, to bring your own doubts to the surface. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think it's vital for us as communities, if you're part of a religious community, to try to have those types of spaces. Um, they, are, they are growing. Uh, they are powerful spaces in which we can grow and mature. Yeah, that's, that's so true. Um... Yeah, I sorry, I'm just getting the question. Um, that's so true. I, I, yeah, it's it's a it's a great perspective to you know to be to grow in faith by actually critiquing it in the first place. We um, see the thing that the problem I, I find in a lot of religious communication is the idea that that. Uh, Someone like, say, the homeless population or the prison population or something like that is the, is the problem. Yeah. That's a problem that we can solve. So you go to the outsiders, whoever they are, say it's going to prisons, 
and you yeah. visit them because you want to be salvation to those people. You want to bring healing to those people. Mm. But the truth is they're not the problem. They're the solution to the problem. There's a problem in our society that we're not dealing with. And the result is the homeless population. The result is racism in the prisons. Mm. The result is, 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 is poverty. And the truth is they are our salvation. We have to go to the outsider, the poor and the oppressed, because they will speak the gospel to us. They will show us that there's a problem in our social body that we are not addressing. Mm. For example, it might be, you know, with the homeless population, a lot of these people in America have mental health issues because they've been in the military, they've got traumas. Yeah. So it tells you that our social body can't deal with mental health issues. It shows a problem with us. So my work, my work is trying to say, you don't, you don't work with the outside. You don't go to the outside voice because they're somehow the problem. They are our salvation. You have to listen to the outside voice. It's the same as a symptom for an individual. Yeah. If you've got outbursts of anger or whatever it is, that's a symptom that you think, oh, that's a problem to get rid of. But no, that exists mm. because there's a problem you're not looking at. Yeah. And if you look at that problem, the symptom will diminish. That's how you deal with a symptom, by looking at the problem that you're not looking at that yeah. causes the symptom in the first place. So all of these decentering practices are designed to let the outsider, the other, be the instrument of our conversion and transformation as individuals, as communities, and as society at large. Yeah, I mean, it's like, there's a, I mean, there's a homeless person I walk past um, every day on the way home from work, you know, because I go in the underground, and... And every day I keep telling myself I'm going to go and, you know, talk to them by buy my meal, that kind of thing. And I'm, I'm going to do that one day. But actually, by what you're saying, I mean, and it's true, the, 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 the best way to deal with, with that problem is not just to feed, that, to feed the homeless guy. It's to deal with the structure that allows that homeless guy to exist in yes. the first place. You know, why, yes. why is he there in the first place? And, um, yeah... And that's exactly. a big... yeah. It's like it's like thinking about Donald Trump. You know, in some senses, Donald Trump is not a problem. He's a solution to a problem. There is yeah. there is racism. There is violence. There are all these problems in America that that and and the way to the, and the, the symptom is Donald Trump. And you think that oh, if we can just you know beat him in the elections or whatever, that will be great. But actually, he is a symptom of of problems of a, of a history of a history of violence that hasn't that's that some people aren't looking at that that's being repressed and it explodes in donald trump now donald trump becomes a problem in himself just like alcoholism is not the problem it's the solution to a problem there's yeah. say the person's job is terrible they're in a yeah. terrible relationship and so they drink but the solution to the problem becomes a problem itself it becomes even more dangerous and it causes the su more suffering but the still you have to go what is it that is fueling the alcoholism deal with that and you can diminish and get rid of the, the addiction to alcohol in the same way it's like going okay donald trump is the, a symptom of, um, of something that's going on in america and uh, that symptom is is destructive and terrible but we now need to address what the problem is that is giving rise to someone like Donald Trump. Um, yeah. And if you're able to do that, you know, you get rid of the power base that he has. Yeah, because, of course, if you don't solve that problem, then somebody else will just come up and replace him. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it won't be Donald Trump, it'll be somebody else. Yeah, just, you know, it's just like the alcoholic who gives up alcohol but doesn't look at the issue. They just start smoking. They start doing crazy fitness. They start diet coke. They they find another addiction, yeah, because they haven't dealt with what's beneath it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's just move on to um, your more recent work, the, um, the uh, Divine Magician. Um, in that book, you talk about you talk about faith um, in the context of a magic trick. Um, so just kind of unpack that kind of concept for us and what, what, that, what that's all about. Yeah, so there's an Archbishop Tillotson who, in the 1600s, noticed that magicians use the word hocus-pocus at the key moments of a magic trick. Mm -hmm. And he realised that that's probably a mockery of some Latin that priests use during Mass when they say hoc est corpus, 
when the bread and the wine turn into the body and blood. Right. So, so Tillotson was like, oh, you guys are just pretending, saying that the, the Eucharist, the Last Supper, the communion is just a magic trick, right? Yeah. And he, he thought this was terrible. But in the Divine Magician, I go, well, actually, Tillotson might be right. And that might be a good way of thinking about communion. And it actually might be a good way of thinking about the true message of Christianity. So in order to understand that, you've got to realize that the, the standard magic trick has three parts. Mm. It has the pledge, which is some object, is presented to the crowd. The term, which is the disappearance of the object. And the prestige, which is the return of the object. But the object that returns is rarely the same object that disappeared. If I make a coin disappear, the coin that I bring back isn't the same coin. Same with a dove. Yeah. The dove that comes back is not the same dove that disappeared. So in Christianity, in brief, I argue that we start with a pledge and it's a sacred object. And a sacred object is defined as any object that you think will bring wholeness and completeness to your life. It mm. might be money, fame, religion, a car, a partner, whatever it is. Mm. And in the Bible, it starts with the sacred object being a piece of fruit in the Garden of Eden. This piece of fruit that Adam and Eve really want is prohibited from them. This prohibition that says you can't have it that makes them really want it. Yeah. So that's the pledge. And I say that all of us as human beings tend to in life until we get over it have sacred objects some object that we think will take away this gap in our being the turn is when the magician puts it, some, that sacred object behind a curtain rips the curtain away says hocus pocus and you mm. realise it's gone Yeah, that, this is how I understand the crucifixion uh, which is set up like the Garden of Eden you have the temple, which has the Holy of Holies, which yes. is where the sacred jet dwells. Mm -hmm. You've got a, a curtain, and then you've got the court of Gentiles where you can walk around, do whatever you want. Yeah. Just like in the Garden of Eden, you've got the garden, Adam and Eve walk around in, a prohibition, and behind the prohibition, the sacred object, the piece of fruit. And at a key moment, you read, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. The temple curtain rips, ta-da, and it's the turn. We realize the sacred object doesn't exist. There's nothing in the room. Yeah. It's empty. It's, it's just empty. a room, yeah. right? That's, for me, the nihilistic core of Christianity, which is what conversion is, the nihilistic heart of faith, where you realize that whatever sacred object you're enslaved by, that you're pursuing, doesn't exist. That if you ever got it, you'd realize it didn't work. You make the money, it doesn't work. But that, the, the magic trick doesn't end there. Mm -hmm. There has to be a prestige. Yeah. And I, I argue the prestige is in the resurrection. And this is the return of the sacred. But remember that I said that what object returns is not quite the object that you lost. And so I argue that in Christianity, you lose the sacred object, the idol. Yeah. And what you get back is the sacred as a depth dimension in all objects. Right. So God is no longer an object that you love. God is now the name we give to the experience we have in the act of love itself. And just to finish, I know it was a long explanation. No, 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 it's really good. Oh, yeah. You see this, I think, in the communion itself. Communion yeah. has three parts. There's the sacred object, the yeah. bread and the wine. That's God. You can touch, taste, see, feel. Yeah. Then yeah. there's the turn. You consume it and it disappears. It's gone. And then you're waiting for the prestige. You're waiting for the return of the sacred. You're waiting and waiting. And then you get up and you say hi to the people beside you. And there's someone's just lost their job. So you say, listen, I can help you. Here's some money. I've got somebody who might be able to offer you a job. Someone else is very ill. So you visit them in hospital. And you realize that that is the prestige. The sacred is not an object. The sacred is what is discovered in the act of love for our neighbor. We are uh, the body of God. We are the site where the absolute is manifest in our love for one another. That's the divine magician in a nutshell. Wow, that's phenomenal. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of, yeah, that's, I never knew that hocus pocus stuff before came from, it's amazing that came from, um, originally came from communion and, and church and priests and stuff. That's um, fascinating.
Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's not the only thing. A patter, which is the thing that the magicians do whenever they try to lull you into a, a false uh, kind of consciousness where they can, you know, do a sleight of hand, probably comes from Paternoster, which is the prayers that the monks would say oh, uh, wow. that would lull them into a spiritual stupor. So there's lots of these interesting connections between magic and religion. I just think that uh, they're deeply insightful. Yeah, yeah, very. Um, definitely. I mean, um, I heard you talk about um, the truth will set us free. The phrase that we, you know that, that we that's obviously it's in the Bible, but um, I've heard you talk about that phrase as that actually we don't believe it. You know that uh, many of us don't believe. It. We say we believe it, but we don't yeah. because we get um, we don't want to acknowledge the truth. You know, yeah. we'd rather just hide away in our safe space, you know, and just... Yes. So just kind of unpack that idea for us a little yeah. bit. Okay, so look at it this way, um, right? So we, as human beings, tend to not want to look at our brokenness, the truth of our desires, our fears, the the, 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 the chaos within, which we, won't, we don't want to look at. It. Um, but the problem is what's called um, compulsive repetition. Compulsive repetition is when... Say you've had a terrible relationship with your family, but you don't look at that, you hide away from it, you push it down. It, it repeats in every other relationship you have. So you're always returning to the trauma and the suffering when you're not looking at it. And it so every relationship has the same problems. It's, it's constantly you're enslaved by the trauma. You're enslaved by the truth that you will not look at. But if you're able to bring that to the surface, bring that to the light of day, what happens is you're able to free yourself from the obsessive compulsion. As you're able to make peace with that part of yourself, you're able to have healthier relationships, uh, have a healthier life. And it's the same with society. It's political as well. A, Mm. A society that can't look at the truth of its history and its violence will repeat that violence in symptoms. Explosions of violence will happen in the judicial system, in the education system, in the police force. It will it will erupt. But if a society is able to bring its deep desires and fears and past and trauma to the surface, by doing that, it's actually freed from the slavery to that trauma. It's free to be healthier, to create a, a better society. Uh, one that is more caring to its citizens and more caring to those who are on the outside. So would you, I mean, to me, I mean, I always talk about, I often think about pedagogical snobbery and um, people not learning the lessons of history, you know, and I see, I see this especially in politics, you know, um, because you get more, you seem to get, every so often, every so often you seem to get leaders who are kind of, maybe say they're extreme left wing or extreme right wing, get elected and become more popular when 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 if you look back in history those ideas and those kind of that kind of politics is proven to be unsuccessful but yes but um yes. so that's this, this uh, is a case of that this is a case yes of what that. i mean that's what made me think yeah. of it yeah exactly that, that whenever you say if, if you don't know your history you'll be condemned to repeat it that's a form of saying you will have compulsive repetition if you don't look at your stuff. So that's in psychoanalysis, that's what they know. They know that if the individual doesn't look at their past, they'll repeat it. But also, as historians will tell you, if you don't, if a society doesn't know its past, it will tend to repeat it. So again, this is just this idea of compulsive, of compulsive repetition. Now, there's a different type of repetition that Kierkegaard talks about, right. and it's a repetition of difference. It's where you repeat the past, but you actually do it a little bit differently. So if you bring this stuff to the surface, if you look at your history and your past, you make peace with that part of yourself, you'll still have relationships, you'll repeat those things, but novelty will enter into them, new possibilities, new directions. So that's the idea, is if you, if you bring the truth to the surface, you're free from the slavery of the past to have novelty and potentiality and, yeah. uh, and really to create a new future rather than a future that just looks like the past. Yeah, it's like when um, someone's in a relationship, a bad relationship, and 
instead of learning the lessons from that relationship, they go and repeat the cycle and go, go out with somebody who's exactly the same. Say, say a woman goes out with an abusive partner and then breaks up with him, but then ends up back with an abusive partner again. Absolutely. They, oh, it's incredible how we do it. I mean, it's amazing. And, it, and if the other doesn't act in the way that we think they should, we almost kind of try to provoke them into being that. We, like all of us, whoever we are, we, we try to repeat our traumas again and again. That's why actually depression is incredibly boring. Like it's boring for the person who has depression because they can't get past something. They keep coming back to the same subject, to the same person they lost, to the same whatever. It's, it's monotonous. And so what they do is in therapy, they try to talk the stuff out, mm. come to accept it so that they can move on, so that they can, you know, repeat differently, get into a different type of relationship. That's why, you know, very for, various forms of mental illness are, are, while they look exciting and interesting from the outside, like, oh, somebody thinks that, you know, the FBI are trying to kill them, and that's really interesting. It's not. It's, it's something that, that enslaves the person. They can't get beyond. They can't critique it. They just return to it again and again yeah. and again. Um, and so, yeah, if you don't know your truth and bring it to the surface, you will be enslaved by the traumas that define you. Yeah, I mean, I I just finished um, a book, writing a book on grace, and um, one of the things I say about grace is that it, it confronts the truth. You know, it confronts the truth about who we really are, um, including the things we don't want to see. You know, the stuff that we've done, our regrets, our mistakes, the things about ourselves we don't like, that we don't want to talk about. Um, but it also confronts actually the, the truth about ourselves that that we're loved and that we're that we're valuable and precious and accepted as we are, which is almost as equally difficult to accept. Sometimes more difficult than than actually the the tough, the, you know, the dark stuff about ourselves. Yeah, no, grace is very important in in this line of work. Is Paul Tillich, as you know, defines grace as the acceptance yeah. that you're accepted. Yeah. So, at a basic level, the experience of grace is the experience that you know you can be honest without being condemned, whether that's in AA where you sit there and you know that people won't judge you whether it's with your family or with yourself it's this experience where you accept that whatever you say mm. you're allowed to say it and in psychoanalysis that ha that's a bottom line thing you know if the person doesn't feel that they're not going to be able to talk about everything yeah. and anything in the room so they have to and it takes a while sometimes before someone knows they can do that so yeah grace is very important uh, when we're trying to understand change both at an individual level and at a societal level. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. It's, um, I think, it's, I, I, I mean, I think the grace is the beginning of a, like a beginning, beginning of everything, you know, it's, um, because, when, because grace kind of frees you to take more risks and confront the truth and to create stuff and, you know, as a writer to create work and to share it without fear of what will happen. You know, you don't, yeah, because that's yes. not where your security is anymore. Yeah. I mean, if grace didn't work, then analysts would, like, tell you off and the therapeutic thing and tell you what you should do and give you, like, you know, all these uh, all this advice, right? Because that's, mm. that's, it would work. Because analysts are just doing whatever works. But the reason why they do that in psychoanalysis is because it doesn't work. What works is a, is, a, is, a, is a space of grace where the person is unconditionally listened to and th what, what they say is accepted um, in, in order to bring stuff to the truth, uh, bring stuff to the surface. Um, and this is why prayer, for example, the type of prayer you hear in churches often is what you could call empty speech in analysis, where you, yeah. you say something like, you know, I care about the kids in Somalia, I, I care about what's going on in the Congo, and I just pray for the president, whatever it is. When really you don't care about the kids in Somalia, really, or the Congo, or the present, you know, it's it's you'd like you'd like to be the type of person who did, right? Yeah, that's a more, right. A more honest prayer would be: I don't care about the kids in Somalia. I don't care who made my food. I don't care about the clothes I I wear. Right? That that would be the type of prayer that that kind of tries to be the moans and groans of your inner being, bringing to the surface the dark stuff, but not so that you can just go, okay, that's me. That's the first step of going, oh, yeah, and you know what? I want to change. Yeah, That's absolutely. why in AA the first step is, you know, my name's Pete and I'm an alcoholic, right? You admit the truth, 
And then, and then you go on to go, and I want to change. But you can't change until you admit the truth in a community of grace that accepts you for who you are. Absolutely, yeah. That's. I mean, I, I actually mentioned that in the book, a Alcoholics Anonymous. Is just a, it's just just an, an amazing example of you know a space where there's grace, and you can be, and yeah. when and and when you have that grace, you can be transformed. And, you know, yes. you can get over your addiction, or you can, or whatever. You can get healing for whatever you've been through, you know. Um, and to me, I mean, that's, that's kind of, to me, that's what church should be like. You know, church should be a safe space where you can come and just be yourself and know that that's okay, you know, yeah. so that you can confront those things and be transformed. Yes, yeah. I think church at its best, it should use its various tools, which are things like music and sermons and prayers, to facilitate that now, I don't think that happens very much. I'm kind of critical sometimes of sometimes what passes for church today. But but I think at its best, church can use those things to help us experience grace um, and bring things to the surface. And so not only individually setting people free, because I'm not, we're not really talking about individuals here. If you've got individual problems, it's probably better to go to a, an analyst. But I'm talking about like a community that's healthy. Mm. Yeah. That actually provides a micro a micro society of resistance that helps you uh, listen to the outside voices and it is part of the healing of society as a whole. Mm. So the church becomes basically this place that that has healthy community that models what a healthy society might look like. Right. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you that's my next question. Um, what what's kind of how do you think the church can embrace the ideas of like a doubt and uncertainty and and what is your vision of kind of what what you know what church can be and what it should what it should look like yeah so i mean to approach this i just quickly want to talk about ideology yeah sure. ideology generally what it does whatever ideology religious ideology political ideology it tells you what's acceptable and what's unacceptable but it also tells you what's acceptably unacceptable. So if you take the example of a boarding school um, in England, what's mm. acceptable is this, this, this student should be sober and upright and moral and, and controlled. And what's unacceptable is drunkenness, lapaciousness, you know, just going, looking down on people. But then there are these spaces where you're allowed to be drunk and, and stupid and engage in all kinds of horrific things. They're the acceptably unacceptable spaces. As long as you keep it quiet, everything mm. runs as normal, right? Secret societies. <laughs> yeah, I'm seeing, and, I'm seeing where this is yeah, going, yeah. Yeah, and the thing about secret societies is not only are, do they exist, but actually you're supposed to be part of them. If you really want to do well, you want to be part of the secret society. Mm, yeah. That's where all the prime ministers are going to be, you know. That's where yeah. all the future CEOs are. Right? In the same way, so it take church in a conservative church. The acceptable is belief, having the answers, being strong about that. The unacceptable is doubt, unknowing, questioning, disbelief. But the acceptably unacceptable is, well, you can have those thoughts and ideas. Just keep them to yourself. Be secretive about them. Don't tell everybody. So we all know the minister has doubts. We all know the worship band don't believe everything they sing. Just don't ever tell us that. Keep it a secret and it's all fine. That's, that's like a joker. A joker is, the, is employed by the king to mock the king, but they're paid by the king. So they're, they're, you know, it's, all, it's an acceptable transgression. Mm. What, what I'm arguing for is a church that actually brings that to the surface. That's always the radical move. That's what a trickster is. The, the, is it's, it's bringing the doubt and the unknowing into the sermons, the prayers, and the music. Not behind closed doors, not secretive, but actually speaking it out as part of faith. Bringing it into the actual liturgical structure of the church itself. That's, but when people do that, they get fired. They get kicked out of their churches. They lose their friends sometimes. So it has to be done carefully. But what I'm arguing is, is for a type of church, future church, that will be able to bring all of that stuff into the very structure, into the light of day, into the open. And when we do that, the old structure, it's like new wine and old wineskins, the old structure will crunch, will collapse. When you bring the, uh, the unacceptably acceptable transgression to the surface, it collapses and something mm. new can be born. So do you think, I mean, are you hopeful for 
the future of the church? Do you see that that happening or happening in the future? And are we moving towards yeah. that now? I mean, I'm very hopeful in terms of like my own very small experience. My microcosm experience is very positive. I find lots of people within church and outside of church, lots of communities that are that are interested in social change, self critique. Uh, sometimes the church gets a bad rap. People think that oh, it's full of narrow minded bigots or people who hold on to their truth as if they've got the right answers. In my small experience. I don't find that. I find lots of Christians saying things like, yeah, I think what I believe is potentially just because of where I was born and et cetera, et cetera, or I'm open to listening to the other. I, I've got over 600 people doing atheism for Lent. Mm. Probably four or 500 of them would call themselves theists or Christians who are like happily loving reading the great critiques of religion. Yeah. And I think that's a wonderfully hopeful sign um, that, 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 that you know, these kind of communities can grow and can exist. I don't think they'll let, they'll necessarily be the dominant form of religion at all. Um, I can't imagine that very easily, but I think it can it can exist and it can uh, be vibrant. Yeah, I mean, I'm one of those. I'm a, I'm I would call myself a Christian. I'm I'm doing atheism for Lent, and um, yeah, I mean, I was I definitely say that it's um, it's it's deepened my faith and actually made me think about what I'm doing with it. You know, how serious I am with it. About it. Fantastic. I, I mean, I'm so glad to hear that. I mean, I, I'm always sad because we're doing it online, so I, I worry that, you know, you miss people miss the, the bodily interaction with people sitting in the same room. Mm. But I'm really excited because I've heard at least some people feedback and say, even though they're mostly doing it online, they've still find it to be uh, a healthy and enlightening experience. So I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, that's, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, really encouraging. I mean, I mean, I'm always wanting to... I don't want to be satisfied where I am. That's why I always say that to my to myself as well. But, you know, that I don't want to be satisfied where I am. I always want to be moving forward. I want to be going places I haven't gone before. And mm-hmm. having to having to step out in faith, having to trust something new, having to have my... And having my faith critiqued as well. I think that's, that's yeah. a really, really important thing to do. Um, definitely. So, yeah. So what's the kind of... In terms of your own work, what's the next, the next kind of thing for you? Um, what's the trajectory of your work and where it's going? Yeah, well, I mean, part of the reason why I live in LA now is because I'm interested in taking the critique that I've been developing within Christianity and within theology and philosophy there uh, and applying it to secular society. So I've been exploring how... There's a type of group. There's, of course, there's the popular religion, which is certainty, satisfaction, give you the answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, and obviously, I've been developing a type of Christianity that 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 articulates an alternative vision, one mm-hmm. in which we are able to bear our our doubt and see it as positive. Um, but secular society is very similar to the type of religion that I'm critiquing. Religion is alive and well in LA. Every corner has a prophet who is. A preaching wholeness, satisfaction, whether it's taking ayahuasca, whether it's through spiritual practices, whether it's through doing some sort of 10-step lecture series or, uh, or getting fame or money, everybody's being offered certainty and satisfaction. And so I want to take this same critique and apply it to secular society. Interesting. To say that we, we all need a space where we're freed not to pursue the thing that will make us happy, but where we're freed from the pursuit of that which will make mm. us happy. Yeah. We're freed from the tyranny of happiness <laughs> to be able to be, <laughs> to be comfortable with actually the full range of human emotions. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, like, it's like basically the world's a huge vending machine full of products that promise satisfaction and wholeness. And the church is in there, uh, as well as BMW, as well as cigarette companies. Everybody's got their little product. Even toothpaste companies have their have their brand of toothpaste in that vending machine. And for me, I'm arguing for a type of a type of Christianity that's that takes a sledgehammer to the vending machine that breaks that whole thing apart. But this is not a Christianity of belief. This is not a Christianity of theism or worldview or anything like that. What yeah. I'm arguing is that the, the radical event that is contained in the name Christianity is an event that frees us from our past, frees us from the tyranny of our traumas, 
frees us to be healthier, more beautiful people, caring for the world, experiencing mm. life before death, yeah. depth and a density to our existence. This is a Christianity that is that I call Christianity because of my historical situation. Born into a world where that word means something with a certain tradition, but yeah. these are universal themes that I'm exploring. You know that that I think have 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 good news for all of us. That's awesome. That's really really exciting. I look forward to reading more about that. That'll be um, that'll be fascinating to to read about. Great. That's really great. So just uh, just to close. Um, this has been really, really great. Um, definitely have to, definitely love to do this again sometime. Um, Absolutely. Um, if there's one thing like you've learnt on your spiritual journey so far that you you want to pass on to somebody, if you could pass on one thing um, to somebody that you've learnt, what would that be? Oof. That's a that's a big one. But I guess I guess <laughs> what I'd say is um, that. You know, we should have a little grace for ourselves on this. You know, we all, it's very easy for me to go, oh, look at that other person. They are using their religion or they're using their uh, their politics as a way of escaping the anxieties of life. Mm. But I have to realize that I do that all the time as well. Uh, it's not obvious whenever I'm well fed and I've had enough sleep. But when my back's against the wall, when I'm stressed, I see these things in my life that tell me that, that I'm hiding from certain stuff, that I have ghosts that I'm not looking at, that I'm not wrestling with, that I'm, I'm hiding myself from. And they become poltergeists then. They start destroying mm. your life. So I guess what I want to say that you know people on this podcast is, is you've got your ghosts and I've got my ghosts. And, you know, try to listen to them. Try to let them speak. They can become holy ghosts if we tarry with them uh, instead of trying to run from them. Uh, if, I, if, if I use an example from Lacan, he, he talks about the symptom as a, as a place of suffering. The symptom is that part of you that uh, you think, oh, that's not me. I have a burst of anger, but I don't know what that is. That's not who I am. Or you burst into tears one day in the car for no reason. I don't know what happened. Those are your symptoms. They're these little explosions of suffering that you think, oh, I, can, I need to get rid of that. I need to fix that. But this, that symptom is telling you something about your life. And you need to listen to it. And if you listen to it, Lacan says it becomes a synthom. He spells it slightly differently. And synthom sounds like sanhom. And sanhom mm. in French means holy man. And mm -hmm. a holy man is someone who cries out in the wilderness for a different type of life. And if you listen to the prophet, to the Holy One, you will find yourself able to repent, which means to change, and to find a healthier life. So your symptom becomes a symptom, a holy man, a prophet, calling you to a better form of life if you can heed that message. Do that in your life. Mm. Try to do that in your society. Try to do that in your relationships. Try to do that in your community. That's awesome. That's brilliant. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Peter, for for coming. Brilliant. It's been thank uh, you for so, having me on. Appreciate yeah, it. It's been so good talking to you. Learned so much, and we'll definitely have you back because I think there's so much more we can learn and uh, so much more to talk about. So, uh, yeah. So. Um, that's it for today, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have and learned as much as I have. And, uh, yeah, I'll talk to you all soon. Perfect. Perfect. Great. Thank you. That was so good.